We're in this series uh, called Follow, and Jesus is going to issue a warning today. I mean, Jesus just doesn't talk about other things the way he talks about this propensity or uh, this sin. Uh, He talks about it completely differently. And here's what we know. We're told that someone in the crowd, right, she just read this, approaches Jesus. He has an issue with his brother. So these brothers, it seems, are arguing over an inheritance from their father. And I'm sure that if you were to ask this guy who's approaching Jesus, right, he would have said, look, it's not about the money. It's the principle of the thing. This is about what's right and what's fair. Now, we've said before that it wasn't a good idea to approach Jesus and have a bad thought in your head or to have something lurking in your heart because Jesus always seemed to know what the men and women that were approaching him, he seemed to know what they were thinking. He seemed to know what was in their heart. So Jesus begins to talk about what he sees as the real problem here. And he does this with very alarming language. He says, watch out, be on your guard against every form, every kind of greed. To which I'm sure his disciples said, oh, Jesus, is that all it is? I thought there was like a lion behind me or something. You know what I mean? They're like, oh, well, okay, well, if it's just greed, you know, that's okay. Now, uh, Jesus talks about greed in a way that he doesn't talk about other sins, and I want to get at the root of why that's true. You know, um, he doesn't say, hey, watch out for murder or watch out for adultery. And here's why, because nobody gets halfway into a killing and then says, hey, this might count as homicide, maybe I shouldn't do it. Right? They know they're committing murder. Nobody in an act of adultery looks at their partner and says, oh my goodness, you're not my wife. I mean, they know they're not their wife. That's the point of adultery, right? He is telling us to watch out to be on our guard because greed is a sin of the eyes. And that means that we are often blinded to it. Greed can consume you and I without us even being aware. So listen, I've been a pastor for over 30 years. As a pastor, I've had people confess every kind of sin to me that you can imagine. Things like anger, yeah, I've got an anger problem, yeah, I've got a pride problem, I've got a lust problem. But in over 30 years of ministry, I have never, not one time, had someone come to me and confess to a greed problem. Nobody's ever owned that they were greedy. Furthermore, when people ask me to preach on things, it's usually things like, hey, can you preach on marriage, or can you preach on family, or can you preach on children, or can you preach about sex, or anxiety, or worry? But do you know that I have not ever had anyone approach me, not one time, and say, hey, pastor, would you talk about greed? I'd love to hear that one. Not one time has that ever happened. Now, one of the reasons for this is that all of us can think, every one of us in this room can think of someone who spends more on themselves than we do. And so nearly all of us in the room like to think of ourselves as either middle class or lower middle class and frugal. 
And the reason we like to think of ourselves as that way is because we, we can always think of somebody that spends more than us on themselves. Like, hey, I don't spend like them. I don't waste money like that. But another reason this is true is because of the nature of greed. It deceives us. In other words, it tells us things like this. Hey, you would need more money than you have right now to be greedy. Greed is for people who have or make more than you. But the interesting thing about this story is that Jesus is warning Jewish peasants not to be greedy. He's warning people who have very little. They're barely eking out a living. They don't, many of these people don't even know where their next meal is going to come from. And yet Jesus is warning them about greed. Right? I mean, they were very poor by our standards, but yet Jesus was concerned they could become greedy and in the process bankrupt their faith and ruin their souls. So it's probably a myth, isn't it, that you need to have money or even lots of money to be greedy. You can be poor, you can even be destitute and still be greedy and not even know it. So here's one way to think about this. When you're at a party and someone has had too much to drink, who's the last one in the room to know? The one who's had too much to drink, right? When you're in a group and someone in your group has a personality problem, who's the last one in the group to know? It's the one with the personality problem, right? Well, greed functions in exactly the same way. The last person in the room to know that he or she is greedy is the one who is consumed by it. And what's so interesting here is that Jesus doesn't just warn us against greed. He says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed or all forms of greed. I mean, it's kind of an odd way to say it. And so I'm going to take a stab at what I think Jesus is getting at. And that's this. See, greed doesn't ever exist for itself. Greed always grows out of our adultery, our idolatry, not adultery, idolatry. So in other words, um, People can be greedy for completely different reasons. They can engage in accumulating and clutching, but they're doing it for totally different reasons. They're doing it to feed their idolatry. So in other words, some people are greedy because they, they, haven't, they bow to the idolatry of control. So control is their idol. It is what drives their greed. So in other words, money gives them a sense of control in a chaotic world. For others, it might be freedom. Uh, the ability to do what I want, when I want, how I want. Because money promises options, right? It promises the ability to do and experience a variety of things. For some of us, it might be uh, our, an identity. In other words, uh, money is what makes my things and my stuff and my money is what makes me successful. It's what makes me significant. So, they, so greed feeds an identity idol. Some might be driven by security because money certainly promises security, right? If there's inflation, if there's a catastrophe, hey, I'm going to have money in the bank. If I lose my job, I will have the resources to survive. But 
Here's the question. Do you really think that money can bring security? Great story. This is um, a, a professor that taught at Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania. In fact, after I told this story in first service, somebody came up to me and said, that's where my husband went to school. No way. So there was a professor there by the name of Dr. Addison Leach, and there were two young women in college, and he was one of their professors, and uh, they'd both gone to college, non-Christians, but they became followers of Jesus there, and this professor was one of the professors that was mentoring them in their new relationship with Jesus. They both decided they wanted to become Christian missionaries. Well, their parents, who were footing the bill and paid to send them to college, were livid about this, and they primarily blamed this professor. So the mother called him, and she said, you know, we wanted our daughter to get a master's degree. We wanted her to make a good living. We wanted her to get something in the bank so that she could have a little security. And here's what this, how this professor responded to this mother. Here's what he said. He said, let me remind you of something, something we don't think about a lot. We're all on a little ball of rock called earth. We are spinning around and moving through space at thousands of miles per hour. And even if we don't run into anything or endure a global catastrophe, eventually every single one of us is going to die. And that means that under every single one of us, a trap door is going to open up and underneath will either be the everlasting arms of God or absolutely nothing. But maybe getting your daughter a master's degree will give her a little security. Listen, friends, the biggest savings account in the world can't stop cancer. It can't stop a car accident or an airplane crash. It can't delay your death. It cannot give you the kind of security that you both crave and need. It can't do it. Only God can give you that. Only God can give you a security that cannot be taken away. God gives you a security that cannot be taken away, not even by a car crash, cancer, or an automobile accident. None of those things. Now, it's important to define greed. It's important for us to all be on the same page about what it is. So we're going to start there. Greed is excessive concern for or excessive worry over or excessive pursuit of or excessive need of or excessive love of money and things. Now the reason that Jesus issues this warning is because Jesus knew uh, that money uh, is the number one rival to God for the human Hard. In other words, if we're going to be anemic followers of Jesus, if we're going to be half-hearted followers of Jesus, it's, because we're ch- it's going to be because we're chasing after someone or something else. And in the United States of America, 9.5 times out of 10, that, that something else is going to be money. Money is the single resource that people look to 
outside of God for what they crave. Money makes many of the same promises that God makes. So, what Jesus does after he issues this stern warning and says something that's quite surprising to many of us in the room, he says, hey, here's one of the reasons you should be on your guard against all kinds of greed, because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, hey, life isn't about stuff. Stuff enslaves you. Things enslave you. Life is about people. He doesn't say that in this story, but he, he very clearly teaches that elsewhere. And then he begins to tell a story or a parable. Now, a parable is a spiritual story that's told to make an earthly point or a spiritual sto- uh, point. And in this story, we can kind of begin to get our arms around what greed looks like. It kind of teases that out for us. So I want you to notice, listen to this story. He says, the ground of a certain rich man produced a crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain. And I'll say, I will say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take like it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. So, what, what we see here is just this guy is so focused on himself. I mean, there's so, it's like I and me and I and me. There's no focus on anything else. He's purely storing up. He's, he's purely accumulating just for himself. And it's so interesting because I think in one season of our life or another, every one of us in this room has a relationship with money where, uh, you know, we just, we want to we wanna buy something because we want it. And so we're willing to overextend. And we'll talk more about this here in a little bit. But because we're all prone to this, um, all of us know what it's like to have regret as it would relate to our finances. Either I, I bought something I shouldn't have, I overextended myself in a way that I shouldn't have or whatever, right? We all have that. Um, and there's a great, so Saturday Night Live, right, it's been around forever. It was around in the 70s even when I was in high school. Some of you are doing the math and you're like, wow, he's like super old. Anyway, it's now SNL, right, but it's been around since um, the 70s. And one of my favorite skits about, because some of us have a relationship with money like this. Uh, it, this one happens to have Steve Martin and uh, Amy Poehler in it. And so just kind of watch as they make light of what some, some of our relationships with money can look like. Check it out. Ugh, I just can't get these numbers to add up. It's like we're never going to get out of this hole. Credit card debt, does it ever end? <laughs> Maybe I can help. We sure could use it. We've tried debt consolidation companies. We've even taken out loans to help make payments. Well, you're not the only ones. Did you know millions of Americans live with debt they cannot control? That's why I developed this unique new program for managing your debt. It's called Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. Oh, let me see that. If you don't have any money, you should not buy anything. Hmm, sounds interesting. Sounds confusing. I don't know, honey. This makes a lot of sense. There's a whole section here on 
how to buy expensive things using money you save. Give me that. And where would you get this saved money? I tell you where and how in chapter three. Okay, but what if I want something but I don't have any money? You don't buy it. Well, let's say I don't have enough money to buy something. Should I buy it anyway? No. <laughs> now I'm really confused. It's a little confusing at first. Well, what if you have the money? Can you buy something? Yes. Now take the money away. Same story? Nope. You shouldn't buy stuff when you don't have the money. I think I got it. I buy something I want and then hope that I can pay for it, right? No. You make sure you have money, then you buy it. Oh, then you buy it. But shouldn't you buy it before you have the money? No. Why not? It's in the book. It's only one page long. <laughs> the advice is priceless and the book is free. Wow, I like the sound of that. Yeah, we can put it on our credit card. <laughs> so get out of debt now. Write for your free copy of Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. And if you order now, you'll also receive Seriously. If you don't have the money, don't buy it. Along with a 12-month subscription to Stop Buying Stuff magazine. So order today. You know, they were able to clap for that in the first service. <laughs> but isn't it true that, I mean, sometimes we all have days like this, right? Where, hey, you know, I just want that. So how can I leverage and extend and finance and make payments to just make that happen, right? We're, we've all been there, and we'll talk more about that a little bit later. But there's a focus on self in this guy's story. That is at the heart of greed. You see bigger and better in this story, right? He, he, you, you hear lots about storage and stuff. He's accumulating, and his life is just marked by the accumulation of stuff. One might say this guy lives his life for the next purchase, the next thing that he's going to buy. And he has so much stuff, he has to build more storage, right? He has to build bigger barns. And then he, he gets to the end of all that and he says, hey, you know what? I've stored up plenty of things for many years. Now I'm just going to take life easy. I'm going to eat. I'm going to drink. I'm going to be merry. This guy just wants to live a comfortable, easy life. And that kind of clues us in on this thing called greed. And then look at God's response to all that. This is so interesting to me. God says, you fool." This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Now, I want you to notice something. He's not condemning the building of bigger barns. He's not condemning the storage of stuff. In other places in Scripture, we're called to save for a rainy day. We're called to have storage. What he's doing is he's condemning the accumulation of things if it is occurring at the expense of being rich toward God. In other words, hey God, I can't afford to give because I've over-leveraged myself. So, Sorry, and again, we'll talk more about that later. So again, he's not condemning having nice things or lots of stuff. He's condemning having nice things and lots of stuff at the expense of being rich 
toward God. And notice, too, that God doesn't call this man wicked. He doesn't call him evil. He doesn't even call him selfish, though he most certainly is. We know that as we're reading the story. He doesn't use any of those words. He just calls him a fool. In other words, why? Why would he do that? Well, because Jesus is thinking about eternity and this life. And he's saying, why would somebody pour, invest so heavily into this life knowing, knowing that eternity, that God is inevitable, that eternity is looming? I mean, here was a man who had planned for every contingency except for facing the truth that one day he would die and have to give everything back to God. I mean, this man had spent an entire life working for something, accumulating things that he wouldn't even get to keep for himself. And notice too, um, oh, so, so in other words, Jesus just is just saying, look, by all means, you know, buy stuff, store stuff. You're going to have to do that. But don't do that at the, exper- at the uh, expense of being rich toward God. And by the way, when it comes to being rich toward God, there are many of us in the room, and I'm pretty sure we're tipping God, but I don't know if tipping God is the same thing as being rich toward God. I mean, this is bigger than, you know, percentage giving and and all that stuff, right? And by the way, this isn't, I'm not even just talking about SCC. Look, there are many, many fine churches and charities out there. Uh, that, you can give your, that you can give your money to, and that I would encourage you to give your money to. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. So uh, when Jackie and I, my wife Jackie and I were in college, um, a speaker that really had a huge impact on me was a woman by the name of Elizabeth Elliot. In fact, uh, Elizabeth Elliot was a prolific author. Um, she wrote a lot. Many books that Jackie and I read in our teens and 20s came um, from Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot had been married to a man by the name of Jim Elliot that was born in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Jim grew up, went to Wheaton, spent four years at Wheaton. He graduated. He was an incredible athlete. He was a world-class wrestler. He graduated with highest honors from Wheaton University, was a deep lover of Jesus. And when he was about um, 20, when he was in his early 20s, he believed that he'd heard, he had talked to a missionary from South America that talked about an unreached tribe of Indians there in South America called the Alka Indians. Well, Jim felt that God was prompting him to go and try to reach this unreached people group. So they began to plan, he and four other missionaries. Uh, they made first contact with these missionary, uh, with these, uh, this unreached people group in the late 50s. Um, oh, on January 29th, 1953, Jim Elliott proposed to Elizabeth Howard on her 21st birthday. They were married on Jim's 26th birthday. Their daughter Valerie was born on February 27th, 1955. Uh, And in the fall of that year, these missionaries made an initial contact with this uh, Indian people group. 
So they were uh, first started out just flying over in a plane and dropping them gifts and trying to speak their language through a loudspeaker. There were a series of contacts where there was more and more contacts. Then they began to meet face to face, but it all went terribly wrong on January 8, 1956, as Jim Elliott uh, was speared to death by the very Indians that he believed God had called him to reach along with his four missionary partners and friends. And so, naturally, he was survived by his wife, Elizabeth, and their 10-month-old daughter, Valerie. Well, after his death, his journals were published by his wife, Elizabeth. Um, In fact, um, yeah, I told you that already. So, I want to just read you, I want you to see one of his journal entries, and it's so um, apropos to what we're talking about here. Here's what he said. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Now think about that through the lens of the story that we've just looked at. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliott lived those words and Jim Elliott died those words. He gave up everything in the hope that people that he didn't even know, people that would spear him to death, But he loved them so much, he wanted them to know the gospel of Jesus. You know, there's a phrase, many of you know, we just went through the book of Hebrews together. There's a phrase in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is the faith hall of fame. He's describing all these, the faith of these saints that have gone on before us. And there's a phrase in there that haunts me. And whenever I think of Jim Elliott, I always think of this phrase. The phrase says this, the world was not worthy of these people. The world was not worthy of them. And whenever I think about Jim Elliott and his life and his commitment to Christ, that's the thought that always comes into my mind. You know, because he's just a modern-day beacon for folks like you and for folks like me. Now, in Luke 16, just a few chapters later, Jesus is talking to a little different group, but nonetheless, this is also a group that's tempted to throw their lives away on things that won't last and things that ultimately won't matter. And so Jesus tells another parable, another story. We're not going to read through that parable. I'll summarize it for you, but then we're just going to look at the teaching that Jesus does after he tells the story. I'd encourage you to read the story. It's fascinating. But he tells the story of a money manager that finds out he's going to be let go by his employer. So he won't be able to manage his employer's wealth anymore. And of course, in this story, we're meant to be understood as the money manager. And of course, God is our employer. He owns it all. We're just managing it. We're just stewarding it. He's given it to us for a little while, right? And um, and so, you know, we're, we're working for him. So what, he, what this uh, money manager does is he goes to all the people that owe his employer money. And he says things like this. He says, hey, I know you owe 800 uh, barrels of oil, but if you can come up with 400 barrels of oil for my master, we'll call it a day. We'll call it even. So he uses the, the money of his master and to make friends, right? So that when he loses his job, 
he'll have somewhere to go because then he can go to all these people and say, hey, well, you know, I did a good thing for you. Like I scratched your back, so now you should scratch mine. So he did it to make friends for himself. And then Jesus begins to teach, and here's what he says. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, this is fascinating to me. Here's what he's saying. Jesus is saying, look, I want you to leverage your money, your resources, your stuff, your things in such a way that when you go to heaven, people are going to rush you. They're going to come to you. They're going to recognize you. And they're going to say things like this to you. Hey, do you remember when you gave to that Christian camp? Yeah, I remember that. Hey, I became a follower of Jesus at that camp. Thank you. Thank you for investing in that camp. And somebody else might come up and say, hey, hey, you remember when you invested in that Christian mission organization? Yeah, yeah. I became a Christian through that ministry. That was partly because of you. Thank you. Hey, listen, do you remember when you invested in that local church? Listen, I attended that church one Sunday. I became a follower of Jesus in that church on that Sunday. I'm a follower of Jesus because of what you did, because of what you offered up, how you leveraged your things in order for me to come into the kingdom of God. I think this is absolutely incredible. And then he goes on and he says this, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much and whoever's dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. So here's what he's saying. This is so important to understand this. Jesus is saying, look, God has given every one of us in the room a little bit of time and a little bit of money. Now, I may have a little bit more money than some of you, and some of you may have a little bit more money than me, but in the context of God who owns everything, in the context of eternity and the riches of eternity, no matter how much, I mean, the the person in the room that makes the most money of all of us, has stored up the most resources of any of us, compared to God, that's still just a little bit of money. So what he's saying, what Jesus is saying here, is that the way we use our stuff and our money in this life is a test for what we're going to be given, the kind of riches we're going to be trusted with in the next life. In fact, he calls those riches true riches because they don't rot, they don't decay, they don't spoil, they can't be taken away. True riches. So it's a test. You know, so important. Now, there are some of us, and we may, you know, kind of push back on this whole idea, well, that, hey, well, God's given me everything I have, and, you know, I'm just stewarding it, and I'm just managing it, and one day I'm going to be held accountable for how I use it. You may push back, because you may say this, say, you know what, pastor, I've worked really hard for the things I have, and I wouldn't push back on that. I feel like I've worked really hard for the things I have. But here's what I would ask you. Um, I mean, you would say, hey, God didn't just give it to me. I had to work for it. Well, okay, but who gave you your gifts and your abilities? Who gave you the opportunities you've been given and the lucky breaks that you've been given? And who placed you in the circumstances in which you found yourself? 
In other words, listen, if God had put you on a mountain in Mongolia in the 13th century, I don't think you'd be doing so good for yourself. I don't care how hard you worked, right? This is the dilemma that we all have. And, you know, by the way, when we talk about worldly wealth, hey, remember when you invested in that camp? Remember when you invested in that mission organization? One of my favorite Sundays around here is Baptism Sunday. Some of you remember two weeks ago, we baptized eight people. But what you don't know is that the same day when Warren shared the gospel, we had another nine people take the time to fill out a card and make it clear to us that they had made first-time decisions to become followers of Jesus. Isn't that awesome? I love that. So what that means, what that means is that more people became Christians on that Sunday than people that were actually getting baptized. This is just incredible to me. And God wants us to care about stuff like that, right? So, so here's what Jesus is, is saying. He goes on and he says this. And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? So the idea, again, is that God has loaned us his property in this life. And if we're not trustworthy in the way that we're handling it, we won't be given much property in eternity. So this is a rewards issue. It's not a salvation issue. Everybody who's a follower of Jesus goes to heaven, but it's a matter of, okay, how much have I sent on ahead? How much have I invested in that life as opposed to my investment in this life? And then, and then he just says it. Here's what he says. No servant can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot serve God and money. And so suddenly the truth starts to sink in. And the truth is this, that in this life, Every one of us in the room, we've only been given a little bit of time and a little bit of treasure. And one day, we're going to be called to account for how we used and invested that little bit of time and that little bit of treasure. Every one of us in the room are going to be uh, called to account for that. And so at best, in this life, you and I will never have anything because God owns it all, right? And at some point, for every one of us in the room, there's this defining moment. There's a fork in the road where you just financially, we either choose to serve and invest in ourselves and our own kingdoms and our own wants and needs and desires or our heavenly fathers. So so now I'm going to ask a question. Isn't it interesting, and this is true of me just like it's true of you, this is true of all of us in the room, isn't it interesting how willing we all are, I've done it, all of you have as well, how willing we are to overextend ourselves financially for something we want. So, for example, you buy a car and you can't really afford it, but hey, you're going to get a raise, you're going to get a bonus, you're going to work some overtime to make it happen. Or we, we want to buy a house, but hey, it, you know, 
it's my dream house. And yeah, maybe I can't quite get in there, but you know, I'll work some numbers and maybe if I stretched out the mortgage and all that down the road, maybe I'll get some raises and then it'll all, you know, it'll be more affordable. We're all prone to that. We're all temptable in this area of overextending ourselves financially for things that we want. Now, do you know what that is? That's called serving stuff. That's called being a slave. See, a slave is someone who's forced to do something outside the boundaries of what you know you should do or what you would want to do. That's what a slave does. So what we do then, hear me out, what we do is we approach our Heavenly Father and we say, hey, I'd like to give more, but I can't. Well, why? Well, because of my debt, because I've already overextended myself. I mean, I've, you know, God, I'd like to invest in your kingdom, but I've already overextended myself to invest in my own. Now, do you know what you call that? You call that being a servant to your stuff, because here's why. Your master won't let you. You'd like to be able to give. You'd like to be more generous, but your master won't let you. See, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you sat down? Like, okay, so I'm going to post two scenarios. When was the last time you sat down? And listen, this is hard for me. This is very difficult. And you said, do I really need all this stuff? When was the last time you sat down with God and said, God, how, how can I give away more of my income to you? Like, how could I strategically begin to be rich toward you in a way that I've never been? And listen, I, I just want to say this. Being rich toward God, is a, it's, a, it's a destination. It's not, you know, it's, not a, it's, it's a process. It's not a destination. So what I'm suggesting is this, and we all do this. So you know what it's like to get on a computer and you want, you're, we're going to buy something. So let's say it's a car. Like me, I'll pour tons of research into, okay, you know, what car is going to get me the most mileage? How's it going to do it the most economically? You know, which car is going to be cheaper to insure? And like, I've got a spreadsheet and a grid, you know, when I'm researching a car. I'm sure most of you do exactly the same thing. But when was the last time you researched how you could be rich toward God? When was the last time you tried to save every dollar you could, not so that you could stash it away, but so that you could be rich toward God? See, it's so interesting to me how willing we are to overextend ourselves to buy things we want, but how unwilling we are to overextend ourselves, listen, to be rich toward God. In other words, here's what I'm saying. I've never met anybody. They may exist. I'm not saying they don't exist. But nobody's ever come to me and said, Pastor, I've given away so much of my money, I need the church to bail me out. I need the church to make my apartment payment. I need the church to make my house payment. Nobody, not one person has ever come to SEC. They, again, they could exist. They could be there, but I've never met them. See, my point is we're very willing to overextend for ourselves. Well, you get the idea. But Jesus said this, you cannot, you cannot serve both God and money. 
So who's your master? Who's your master? Some of us need to have, look, I need to have a conversation with God about this. God is peeling stuff out of my heart this week. He is. And he wants to peel stuff, cancerous stuff, out of your heart. You know, in a minute, we're going to sing a song, and it's called um, Jesus Strong and Kind. And I want to leave you with this thought. These words of Jesus are a kindness to you and me. It's a kindness. In fact, uh, Paul says it this way in the book of Romans. He says, don't you know that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance? In other words, it's God's kindness that leads us to change our mind. Jesus isn't saying, he's not telling us his stories to punish us or hurt us. He's, He's telling us these stories because he loves us and he wants what's best for us, not just in this life, but for all eternity. Friends, this warning is kind, and it's patient, and it's generous. Do you know that when Paul encourages Christians to be generous in the world in which they find themselves, he almost always points to the generosity of Jesus. And he says things like this, you know, for, his sake, for, for your sake, he became poor so that you, through his riches could come to know God. In other words, Jesus did. Jesus has already done the very thing that he would ask of you and me. He leads the way every day, all the time. That's our Jesus. It's a kindness, friends. It's a kindness. Otherwise, we're just enslaved to a bunch of stuff we don't even get to hold on to in the first place. So let me pray for you and for us. Listen, one more thing. I don't want to be that guy that's enslaved to his stuff. I don't want to be part of a church where people are just clutchers. And I don't think you do either. So let me pray for us. Papa, you know our hearts. You know what's in us. You know what needs to go. God, would you begin that work and would you help us to see it, maybe for the very first time, God, don't let us be blind to what's in us and unpleasing to you. Would you speak to us? Would you lead and guide us? We need that, Lord Jesus. Left to ourselves, it's about nothing more than what we want. So we offer our very selves up to you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.